So we're going to be beginning this uh, new series. We've been working over these past months uh, through the letter of Peter. That's the New Testament. Those of you who might be new to the Bible, the Bible's broken up into two uh, major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is everything from the birth of Jesus onwards, the life of the apostles. The Old Testament is everything from the beginning of the world until the point where uh, God stopped speaking, in a sense, awaiting the birth of Jesus. So we've spent some time uh, in the New Testament. We're going to dip back in now into the Old Testament. Those of you who've been around for a while, uh, we've been going on a journey through the early part of Genesis. Actually, the, the early part of the Bible, the later part of Genesis. And we've looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, they are, the, if you like, the great iconic uh, beginning of God's re-engaging with the world, speaking powerfully and directly uh, to the world. And, and we took a little leap while we were looking at the life of Jacob. And the leap that, leap that we took was to just pause, jump over the life of his son, Joseph. We're going to come back to that now. We've called this series Long Lost Family. Uh, you might see the connection there. It's pretty obvious, hopefully. If it isn't obvious, we're going to see it over these next uh, few weeks. I'm going to make, hopefully, the first and last comment on the other obvious connection. Uh, I'm expecting that it's quite likely that we might well dispel some of our long-held beliefs in the story of Joseph, which have been taught to us, instructed to us, through that iconic reference of ancient history, Joseph and the amazing technical Adrinko. Um, if you've bought your whole history of the life of Joseph from that, I'm going to apologize now that that might be dispelled here and there, and we just might get back uh, to what the Bible says about this amazing character. What we've already mentioned is really important for us to come to terms with. What we're digging into here is those footsteps that God is creating in the history of the world. Just to begin with, to give you a picture of the whole overview of the Bible. We see at the very beginning this portrayal of God's blessing on His created humanity his love for his created humanity, and the opportunity that that created humanity has to be in perfect, loving, eternal relationship with God. That is an amazing thing. It's a blessing. It's what we are created for, to be in perfect, eternal, loving relationship with God, and perfect, eternal, loving relationship with each other, and perfect, eternal, loving relationship with the world that God has created for us. That tripartite set of relationships is how we are made to be. To live as real people in a real world, perfectly at peace with each other, perfectly at peace with the notion of, of work, perfectly at peace with the notion of enjoying this planet in leisure, and perfectly at peace in relationship with the God who made it. That's how we are made to be. 
And yet what we see portrayed is the crisis that occurs when humanity rebels against all of that notion and decides it has a better way of understanding how to live in this world. It would be better if we live according to our view of living in this world rather than God's view of living in this world. That crisis occurs and at that moment there is a tripartite shattering of those relationships. No longer are we in perfect, loving, eternal relationship with each other. No longer is this world a perfect, eternal, loving relationship of sustaining opportunity for us as human beings. And no longer are we in a perfect, eternal, loving relationship with the God who made us. At that point, there is a huge question mark, isn't there? Is that it? Is that the end? And the rest of the Bible goes on to say, no, that is not the end. The end is when God restores all three of those relationships. When there is a perfect, eternal, loving relationship with God. When we are once again in a perfect, eternal, loving, loving relationship with each other. And this world is once again reconstituted. So all that it is intended to be in God's view is once again restored. That is the promise of the message of the Bible. Now the issue is, if that's what it was like at the beginning and that's what it was like at the end, but there has been a crisis of relationship, how is that going to be restored? And the answer is, we can't do it. But God can. And what we see in Genesis is the beginnings of God's journey of taking us back to that point of relationship. How God opens up for us a pathway to salvation, to life, and to life eternal, to reconciliation with Him, and in being reconciled with Him, reconciliation to each other, and the world will once again be what it ought to be. What I love about the pattern that we see in the Bible, the way we see that unfolding for us, is that God doesn't somehow stand distant and kind of zap us from heaven and suddenly make everything instantaneously right. Rather, what God does is He gets down into the reality of the grimy mess that this world is. He gets into this situation. I don't know where all of your situations are right now. It might be that you are facing issues in life where you say, this is just so messed up, this is, there is just so much crisis going on here, it seems as though it is impossible for any light to be shared from God into this. I want to give you an encouragement at this point in time. God breaks into this world and lives with the mess. Let me just repeat that. God lives with the mess as it is going on. What we actually see here is a really dysfunctional family. Just the kind of family, in fact, that you would least expect for God to work with. Just the kind of family that you would probably say, well, that's not quite appropriate for the great message of salvation for this world to work in. 
God isn't going to work in that kind of family. He's going to keep on looking until he finds just the perfect family. And then everything will be right and everything will be fine. And then we can start the job. Isn't it great news today, for us today, that God doesn't work like that? That actually what God does is He lives with our crises. He engages in the realities of our mess. He works when we make wrong steps. He continues to engage with us in that grace-filled way which is recognizing the reality of the mess and yet continually taking us on steps of reconciliation. We see this at the very beginning of our letter. I'm going to jump into verse 3 where we see the mess that God is engaging with. We already know a little bit about the family from our previous series. If you want to, you can uh, hear them online if you want to alternatively read through the earlier chapters of Genesis. What we see here is a foolish father. He's got a whole bunch of sons and he identifies and he lives out all sorts of past emotional experiences which have engaged with him so that there is one who he identifies and he loves him more than all of the others. That kind of behavior, that kind of action creates a huge crisis in the family. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. It's one of those um, iconic little moments in the Bible which has sprung into all sorts of cultural references. The idea of the, the beloved son who the father not only identifies as loved but also then parades it in front of all of the rest. A foolish father. Can God work with the kind of mess that that brings up? Well, let's see over these next few weeks. At the same time, I think there's something else that we need to just pause and recognize. We are, we are by nature, we have all sorts of complex hang-ups uh, and we have all sorts of prejudices, don't we? What is um, striking in, in America at the moment is what we thought, in fact, uh, the latest um, Harper Lee novel, uh, Ghost Set a Watchman, has just exploded the whole issue, again, of, of the issue of racism and the problems that uh, America still seem to have with something which, was it answered, was it resolved? Clearly not. We have prejudices. If racism is the idea that we are in our own particular race somehow superior to other races, maybe we can coin another ism. I think we can also live as millennialism, millennia, with millennialism. What's that? Well, I don't know whether it really exists. I hope I'm not using a word that is already grabbed for something else. But I think we can live with a kind of attitude which says that our age is superior to every other age that has gone by. A kind of attitude which says now is the moment when humanity has reached its zenith. 
And everything else gone by is somehow secondary, somehow less. It's a real challenge that, isn't it? It's a real challenge when the Bible calls us to come to these kind of ancient accounts and say, right now, start to learn. Start to learn from this. I saw a very interesting um, YouTube video preparing for this and trying to come to terms with just that issue. Um, Some of you will remember the Bird's Nest Stadium, the National Stadium of China, the one, the Beijing Olympics, an incredible structure. There's another incredible structure from the ancient world, which was the Colosseum. Uh, There's been a recent investigation comparing those two stadiums and using a whole set of really amazing, complex human behavior modeling, there was a comparison made on the relative performance of this ultra-modern stadium, the Beijing National Stadium or Chinese National Stadium, the bird's nest. How quickly could it be evacuated? Comparing that with the Colosseum. And so they ran, modeled both of those stadiums and ran the software. And initially it seemed very clear that the bird's nest was clearing people out so much better than the Colosseum. Uh, And then you saw the model and all the seats and people were vacating and the bird's nest just seemed to, all these little electronic people walking around the stadium disappearing out through the staircases and it all looked well. The Colosseum still had people on, in the seats. And then all of a sudden, the uh, modeling software began to record, in, in the drama of the video anyway, they began to recognize, well, it's actually no good just to get them out of the seats. It's actually evacuating the stadium. And what the genius of the ancient world had done is they had cre- created ever-increasing width of staircases so that initially it looked like it wasn't working as well. And yet, the lower you got, the more people could get onto the staircases and evacuate out through the Colosseum. The designer of the bird's nest was in this modeling exercise and suddenly realized his stadium didn't perform as well as the Colosseum. Why? Well, I think maybe because we have that natural tendency to just think we are superior. We don't recognize that there has been great minds. There has been serious intellectual thinkers. There have been people who have been engaging with all sorts of issues that we continue to engage with. We are not unique. And therefore, when we come to a passage like this, when we take ourselves back millennia, let us not fall into the trap of believing we can't learn anything from this so long ago. After all, we're considering God's eternal Word, a Word which continues to speak to us today. I want to suggest initially that there are two things that we can identify. Firstly, we can identify the problem with our purity. And secondly, we can identify the problem with our superiority. 
First thing we see, Genesis 37, 1 to 4. Let's read it. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of, Can- in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. What can we learn from that? I I guess most of us would jump in and say, oh, oh, doesn't that, doesn't Joseph wind you up? Doesn't he just wind you up? Isn't he the kind of person that, you know, when you, do you remember when you were kids in school and you were kind of getting involved in stuff that really, really you shouldn't have been involved in and you were kind of, it was great fun, but you knew you shouldn't do it, but there was always one, wasn't there? There was always one who went off and told tales Uh, And somehow that person always kind of, they got away with it because they were good and they were honest and they got the pat on the head or they didn't get detention and everybody else got detention or if you're old enough, everybody else got the cane and all of the, there's not many left who would have got the cane, I guess, but everybody else had trouble. That's our immediate reaction, isn't it? That's the way we first think. I want us to just pause for a moment and just see before we jump into that telltale response with regards to Joseph. Let's just remember and see where we're going. Firstly, I want to point out to you the relative age difference. Joseph is the youngest. He's 17. In fact, Joseph is precisely the one who you most would expect would be clowning around. He's the one who would probably most immature. He's the one who should be when he's out of sight of his father Jacob. He's the one who should be sagging off. He's the one who should be messing around. He should be the one who's firing stones at the local tents or whatever they did back in those days. His older brothers, who are by now mature men, are the ones who should be, when out of sight of their father, behaving in a way which is mature and wise and appropriate. They are the ones who should be bringing into line the young book And they are the ones who are actually, when out of sight of their father, they are not living and they are not behaving and they are not uh, appropriate as mature men. As soon as we say that, as soon as we have that extra little insight into what is going on, we are moving away potentially from our immediate response, which is to get really frustrated with the telltale. We're actually saying maybe what Joseph is and what the narrator is wanting to just lodge in our minds 
at the beginning of this account is maybe there is a discrepancy. A discrepancy in the appropriate behavior of the sons of Jacob compared to the behavior of Joseph. Joseph is the one who brings the report to his father of his older brothers who are not living appropriately when out of sight of their father. What's the history of this family? What is the history? The history is that by father, by grandfather, and by great-grandfather, there is a uniqueness to this group. There is an identifiable uniqueness. There is an understanding which is permeating through this family unit, which we are responsible for bearing the message of God into this world. After all, it is our father and our grandfather and our great-grandfather who God has spoken to. We're not the kind of people who can just live however we please. There is a responsibility that is placed upon us by our history, by our heritage, by who we are, by the people who should be bearing the message of Yahweh to the world around. And yet here we have that falling down. And it is the young one, it's Joseph, who's raising the flag Secondly, just to support that notion, just to pause us before we put our foot on the gas of anger with the telltale, we also just notice that the narrator makes no comment about the inappropriate behavior of Joseph, does he? He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say that Joseph was that kind of person. In a sense, he's suggesting that Jacob might well have been inappropriate in his use of that information. But he doesn't condemn Joseph for his response in telling his father. Family heritage, the God-fearers, is at stake. And it's Joseph the younger who identifies the problem. What is the result of that? hatred. They couldn't even speak to him. The hatred that builds up in this family unit is profound. They couldn't even, in the same community, even articulate words towards this younger brother. This isn't just a little bit of a family squabble. This is a massive crisis A crisis which is engineered, it would seem, by first and foremost, the brother's first inappropriate behavior, and secondly, by Jacob's inappropriate behavior towards Joseph. But I think it also points to our problem with purity. You see, one of the things that we don't like, one of the things that we really find uncomfortable is when the hidden, when the things that we imagine are not seen become reported. When the things that we think we don't want anybody to know about, those authorities 
those ones who will call us to account, those ones who've made demands of us like God, who said, this is how you are to behave, and we say, no, I, I, I will not have that God to rule over me. In a sense, I want to suggest at the beginning that that is the beginning of the heart of these older brothers. What's at stake is what Jacob has said is the appropriate way to live according to who you are. They don't live according to that, and they don't want it to be in the open. We have a problem with our purity. How does it carry on? I think we have a problem with our superiority. Look at how it unfolds. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the fields when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Oh, here we go again. This arrogant youth. He has one dream. That's pretty in your face. Oh, what did you dream last night, Joseph? Asks Judah or Dan. Actually, they wouldn't because they weren't speaking to him. I dreamt that we were all represented by sheaves. And my sheaves stood upright. And other sheaves bowed down to mine. It makes me so angry. You arrogant youth. You're the 17-year-old. We're the men. Don't you dare behave like that. There's an interesting extra little link that the narrator adds in this story. There's another dream. Sun and moon and stars bow down to his. Where uh, Joseph previously brought a report to his father and his brothers were angry, now he brings a report to his father and his father is angry. Isn't that interesting? That extra little twist that the narrator brings into this. His father's angry. How dare you? You know, it's one thing to be arrogant with your brothers. But me and your mother bowing down to you. What an arrogant youth. Except that... If we read this as a continuous narrative of the story of all of the accounts that have previously gone on, 
we ought to see that there is something absolutely profound going on at this moment in time. One of the things that have happened on a number of occasions, critical in the life of Abraham, critical in the life of Jacob, is that God has spoken in dreams. Previously, the great-grandfather Abraham, there was a dream that God spoke to Abimelech regarding Abraham. Jacob has two dreams where God speaks. Now, this is one of those key moments where we are in danger of being uh, millennialists. I'm going to get that word out one day. Where we think we're more far superior because after all, we've got all of this written down point of information. Way back then, we live in an oral community. A kind of community where these kind of stories would not be gathering dust in the past. They would be repeated again and again. They would gather around and they would repeat the stories and pass the stories on from one to another to another. And those stories in an oral community are profoundly powerful and are also retained with incredible accuracy. There's an account of a preacher in the 17th century preached a message. And the whole of the message was recounted to his wife when he got back home because they were an illiterate community but they were powerful in remembering and keeping information of what was said. And these stories of the dreams of their father and the dreams of their great-grandfather and the significance that God was speaking on those occasions would have been retained. And yet when God potentially is speaking in dramatic dreams again, they don't want to know. They don't want to hear Because we are superior. Just to reinforce that problem that we have with the oral community. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. But now that we live in a world of immediate, immediately available internet searching, you know, we can Google anywhere information, can't we? Are you finding it, is it or is it just me? Are you finding the, actually, I don't actually hold information the way I used to. You know, those of you who've only grown up with Google, you don't know the old days. <laughs> but actually, I, I think we struggle a bit more to hold information because it's so available. We don't have to exercise that, that ability to retain and to retrieve. Because it's just there. And yet these brothers and the father and the mother, all of those who are hearing these dreams, at this moment in time, they decide to shut off the possibility that God is speaking at this moment in time. The history that they recount around the fireplace of a nighttime, of the dreams gone by, the significance of God's intervention, and now God speaks twice with the same message. 
You're going to bow down. Not to this one. Because we will never bow down to anything that is inferior to us. And therein is our problem. That kind of nails one of the key issues that we have with the message of the Bible. I will not bow down to anything that is inferior to me. It's got to be be bigger. It's got to seem bigger. It's got to be more powerful. It's got to be more amazing. Final, a little family that would not hear God's message. Was that it? A few moral lessons from history. Make sure that we listen to the danger of our purity. Make sure that we listen to the danger of our superiority. Or is there something else? One of the great things that the Bible does just throws in an idea right at a moment in time and just allows it to develop and grow and nurture and and mature. And we're at the other end of that journey. You put one of those fizzy tablets in your exercise bottle and initially it's just a tablet in there and then over about five minutes it fizzes and fizzes and fizzes. Uh, and then the water is finally an amazing pink or orange color because the whole of the the whole of the thing is now emerging. That we're now we are there. We're at the point where the whole thing is, has emerged. Because there's another moment where there is another son who is very, very, very inferior. Another son who has no seeming credibility or authority. He's born to insignificant parents. He is unlikely to be heard. In fact, the religious authorities to display exactly the same superiority towards him. We will not listen to him. We will not bow down to someone who is as insignificant as that. His name is Jesus. What does he do? He comes into this world, and whether we like it or not, firstly as an example with the authorities that challenge him, he effectively, he brings a report to his father, and he says, there is impurity. He says it through the whole of the challenge that the religious authorities bring to him where he talks about the, the, the rules that they've made, and he says, you, you don't understand the Father. You don't understand the law. You don't understand grace and mercy and love and justice. You are just, you are not living appropriately. And then he turns around and he says to every single one of us, effectively, I am bringing before the Father in heaven, I am bringing a report which says that we are all impure. He says that there are those who think that everything is marked by the outside. What we do on the outside. But the reality, he says, to these religious elite, it's out of the heart come all of the problems. Mark chapter 6, I think it is. It's from out in the heart. That's where the issues are. That's where the real problem is. And he's saying, look, you need to understand, a bit like Joseph was bringing a report that we are not living appropriately 
in a world which is created by God, who is, which is owned by God, where we are responsible towards God, we are not living appropriately. And he says, you, you are living with impurity. Wow. But then he also says, and you also have a problem with bowing, bowing to that which seems inferior. You see, whenever we place Jesus on just that historical Jesus of Nazareth, whenever we place Jesus on just that person from history, He remains just a figure from history. Somebody who we can control, somebody who we can retain as somebody who who is inferior to our later superiority. And it's what we do. Until we realize Jesus is who He is. And then we bow to that seeming inferiority because we now understand that that is truly more superior than we could ever imagine. And He says, effectively, there is going to come a day (laughs) when all of your sheaves and all of your stars and all of your suns and all of your moons are going to bow down to mine. Philippians says exactly this. There is going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That one who came seemingly insignificant, who now becomes the exalted King of heaven and earth. The Son who seemed For many, arrogant. It's what cost him his life after all. And yet he becomes the one who is worthy of our worship, yes. But he becomes the one where all of that which he promises does actually come true.